unfortunately, like my one remembrance of the character in uh, live action is Ben Affleck's Daredevil. And oh, I'm so I, sorry. I, exactly, right? They say your whole life flashes before your eyes when you die. And it's true. Everyone and welcome to episode 39 of Plot Devices. We're here, we're catching up on a lot of things, we're in the midst of awards season, and that means for the last couple of episodes of the year, we are going to be with a lot of things, ah, but hopefully there'll be good things. And, you know, spoiler alert for the show, there's a couple of really cool things we're going to be talking about later today. I am one of your hosts for today, of course, Brandon King, alongside my normal co-host, Noah Guzman. Noah, how are you in all the things? Hello, Plot Device crew, Plot Device Fans, listeners, supporters, hello plots, hello plots, hello popcorn kernels. I'm doing mighty fine, Brandon. This is the episode we are talking about. One of Marvel's biggest releases. It is the Wakanda Forever episode, but we have plenty of other features that we're going to be uh, dissecting and reviewing today. So I'm definitely looking forward to our review portion of today's show. Uh, we do have a couple news topics that we're going to be stopping on. Um, the first one I think is going to pique some of our fans' interest as well because it is another discussion on Marvel's upcoming release, um, Ant-Man and the Wasp. Quantumania, or is there no Wasp in that? No, there's Wasp. There is? Okay, my bad. I think it really is in the movie. I, I know, but I just didn't know if the Wasp was just the sec- was just the sequel name. Yeah, so um, first of all, sorry that this is so delayed. Um, Noah was traveling. I got sick. I couldn't talk for a minute. Uh, this basically leads to an episode that feels a bit non-topical, but, you know, we did that. Uh, if you guys remember back from spring, we had the whole Everything Ever All at Once debacle that came out like a month and a half afterwards. So, like, we're used to this. You guys are hopefully used to it from us. Yeah. When you get that notification, when the plot device says, hey, new episode, you go, okay, I press play. And this is why we made the longer episode, so that hopefully it can last you like another week or so. So uh, apologize in advance. You know, we're, we're getting to it. Uh, and also apologize that this is going to be a very Disney slash Marvel heavy show. It was not intentional. It just made the fact that there's a very big movie coming out of Wakanda Forever. We're talking TV in this episode in She-Hulk. We'll get to that very later. But we're going to start off... Uh, with finally the first trailer for Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantumania, as Noah pointed out. The first trailer was released earlier this month, or was it later October? I can't remember the exact date. It was recently, so we're going to talk about it. It's set after the events of Avengers Endgame. It picks up, of course, with Paul Rudd's Scott Lang, a.k.a. Ant-Man, and Evangeline Lilly's Hope Van Dyne, a.k.a. Wasp, as they and their loved ones are pulled into the mysterious quantum realm, which was established in the first two movies and, of course, made a big uh, plot point of Avengers Endgame, where they encounter the threat of Kane the Conqueror, making his MCU debut by Loki's Jonathan Majors and what is going to be one of, you know, one of many huge roles for him going forward. Uh, Catherine Newton joins the cast as Scott's daughter, Cassie, taking over the role from Emma Furman. I have thoughts on that. With Randall Park, Michelle Pfeiffer, and Michael Douglas returning from their previous Ant-Man franchise roles, Quantumania is set for release on February 17th. And it's going to be, I'm pretty sure, the first new property in uh, Marvel Phase 5, which, of course, we just wrapped Phase 4 of Wakanda Forever. Noah, over to you. Uh, this trailer gave us, I think, a lot more than people were expecting. It didn't give us the beaten, bloodied Scott Lane that's been going around Twitter for the past couple months or so. But uh, again, it, it provides a lot of stakes. What did you think of the trailer? They've done it again. They've given us a new Cassie Lang to become, you know, greeted with, introduced to. 
we're going to spend the bulk of the movie with her. As we see in the trailer, she does travel to this quantum realm with her dad, uh, Scott Lang. And from my, you know, very minor comic book knowledge, I believe that Cassie Lang takes on the alias of... Brandon. Um, oh, Stature. Yes, I was like... Stature? Oh, <laughs> Wait. Ant-Man and Stature? Why did I think it was like another bug name? Well, that being said... I think at some point she takes on like either the Wasp or but normally it's stature and like the Young Avengers that they're leaning up towards. So potentially, I mean, undoubtedly, we can expect Cassie Lang and Catherine Newton. I'm hoping to be attached to this franchise moving forward. I am a fan of Newton's um, from her work in Little, Big Little Lies or just looking at her uh, previous work in the movie Freaky. I just think that that's an exciting face to be added to the MCU. Uh, and we'll see how she does in Quantumania and how she's received. That being said, we have other additions to the cast that I'm happy are returning after their introduction, like Michelle Pfeiffer's Janet Van Dyne. Uh, Randall Park just coming back as Jimmy Woo is going to be exciting to see. But... This trailer, uh, when it kicked off, I think I missed, I, w- I actually saw it in theaters and I missed seeing Scott's face in the very beginning. So when I finally like was looking at my screen and like put the popcorn down, I saw this world that just opened up and like it, it looked so different than what I have seen in these major Marvel movies to the point where I'm like, oh wait, what movie is this? Like, what is this going to be? And then we get like these three, uh, who I'm expecting to be like the the dwellers of the quantum space, like crawl up and out on top of this mountain. I don't even know what you want to call it, but this movie just is giving us a whole new world, a whole new um, community of people to learn about, learn the ways of, uh, of course, we know that Janet Van Dyne has spent some time in the quantum realm from Ant-Man and the Wasp, but there's clearly so much more to see. And Jonathan Majors coming in as Kang the Conqueror, uh, not having that blue mask on his face entirely the whole time is exciting me. Uh, I was worried with, or I was speculating, like, what are they going to do with his mask? Like, uh, I did want to see his face clearly. And we did in the Loki series, but how they were going to continue with that, uh, I was curious about. So uh, nothing from this trailer gave me a sour note. You know, I think that there's so much new here uh, from the world, uh, not so much from Scott's ability, but he does retain that very goofy nature to him, um, quoting that he's, mistaken or he's misidentified as like spider-man for some reason it's probably because paul rudd was the sexiest man of, of 20 <laughs> i can't remember what it was, before, it was he passed, before he passed it on to chris evans yes uh brandon what were some of your reactions after you saw this trailer and did you see it in theaters did you you know watch it as soon as it dropped on your phone you know how was your experience I watched it as soon as it dropped, and of course I saw it a couple times in theaters, obviously with you know Black Panther, but I forgot that it came out. <laughs> like I had seen it a couple times on the web before, and then I think I saw it once in theaters, but then when I went to see Wakanda Forever, I was like, oh yeah, the Ant-Man trailer dropped. This looks cool. And it does look cool. I was expecting from all of the hype coming out of from Comic-Con and you know D23 and like the people who had seen the initial cuts of the trailer, I was expecting something a little bit darker, like Obviously, you know, as I mentioned before, the what happened to the, you know, bloodied and beaten Scott Lang photo that's going around. I guess that's, you know, later in the movie and they took it out. Um, you're right. Kang looks great. Uh, I was really worried at, you know, we talk about comic accurate designs and how much Phase 4 was leaning into them. Kang's design in the comics is pretty goofy between, like, the green and the purple and the blue hollow thing. It looks great in animation. I love how it looks in Avengers of the Mighty Heroes, but I was worried how it looked in live action. I like how it's looking so far. I'm curious to see how much like the actual CG behind the mask works and you know how the how the colors all work together. Um, one of the things I've really liked about the Ant-Man movies is 
the parallels between Scott and Cassie and uh, Hope and Hank, the kind of father-daughter dynamics and how messy but really lovingly those can become. Uh, and it pretty much convinces me that Hank is going to die in this movie. Uh, I- I'm sorry. I-, I think Hank's fighting it. I mean, the three that are on the poster cover, I don't think we're seeing them go on- gone anytime soon. Cassie's not but, dying. But is it time for them to say goodbye, Dr. Hank? Maybe. I mean, it, it would work. Like they're not because they're not killing off Scott, and like you're going to keep the father daughter dynamics. Like making Hank make the ultimate sacrifice, it would work, and it would be the giant emotional gut punch. And it's Michael Douglas, so he'd act his ass off. Um, I also should say I love the use of Goodbye Yellow Brick Road in the trailer. I love the kind of just weird off kilter key change that song has, and how it kind of adds to the whole. You know, even if it's going to like the opposite Wizard of Oz effect, where it's you know you find the mysterious being, but it's not who he says he is, and like I like that kind of parallel going forward. But like visually, it's a treat. It's still pain redirecting, so I totally trust the sensibility of the characters. I'm on board with it. it. You know, it doesn't give me everything I hoped for, but for a first look, it looks great. What can we expect? Kang's impact will be in Scott's world here in the quantum space, but even beyond that, and back to you know modern day Earth, and how is that going to affect like our greater MCU? It's just so curious to me because I don't know what Kang can ask of Ant Man and what that dynamic can be before it ultimately ends up in feud because I'm assuming that that's where it has to head. Uh, but do you have thoughts, Brandon, before we, you know, move on? There's an interesting contrast because I, I don't know about you. I feel like in a lot of Marvel circles, there's the idea of Scott as like, he's the fun, loving, goofy dad. He's not supposed to be here. He just happens to have powers. And I wonder if this movie is going to take that, you know, is going to take that character of Scott and really, build him up to that degree that many of us didn't think he would be like maybe he could lead the avengers like maybe he does become more serious and more of a leader type figure when facing off against someone who is as disastrous and consequence uh and has as much of consequences as king does as far as like king's relationship with scott that's kind of interesting because why would king give a crap like if he wants to like hank knows way more about the quantum realm and everything like that janet obviously has her own experiences but scott's a heist planner so I wonder if that heist element is going to have a thing in there of like, oh, if you want your daughter back, you have to do this quantum heist for me. And, and that goes back to like the original movies. I could see that being the thing. Let's move on to our second major topic for today. Uh, Jimmy Kimmel is hosting the Oscars for a third time. The 95th Oscars have officially found their host after speculation. There wasn't really that much. It wasn't a huge hullabaloo, but Kimmel is doing it again. Uh, he issued a statement, quote, being invited to host the Oscars for a third time is either a great honor or a trap. Either way, I'm grateful to the Academy for asking me so quickly after everyone good said no, end quote. Uh, this is a follow-up statement from CEO Bill Kramer and Academy President Janet Yang. Quote, Jimmy is the perfect host to help us recognize the incredible artists and films of our 95th Oscars. His love of movies, live TV expertise, and ability to connect with global audiences will create an unforgettable experience for our millions of viewers worldwide. This, by the way, puts Kimmel in a five-way tie for hosting the Oscars three times. That includes Jerry Lewis, Steve Martin, Conrad Nagel, and David Niven, and only Whoopi Goldberg, Jack Lemmon, Johnny Carson, Billy Crystal, and Bob Hope have hosted more. Side note, Bob Hope has hosted 19 Oscars? I don't know how that's possible. Things were weird, but okay, sure, why not? Uh, The 95th Oscars are going to premiere March 12th. We're going to be getting our nominations in January sometime soon. I will mention my quick hit later on. Spoiler alert. Uh, Noah... This, to me, at least at first glance, seems like a pretty safe choice. We've heard basically every year for the past couple of years about how Oscar ratings are dipping and how they're trying everything and every uh, everyone to try and get ratings up. 
we, you know, we know about the debacle last year. They maybe got a bit gun shy about having the trifecta of hosts that we got in Amy Schumer, Regina Hall, and uh, Wanda Sykes. Does this feel like playing it safe? If they want to play it safe, it, I have a big question of why, when we thought that we could be experimental last year and they did the three hosts and there, and it was something to watch coming to this year's, I really would have loved to see a new face, you know, a, a fresh face that is still able to speak to the masses. I'm still rooting for Kumail Nanjiani, man. I would have loved that kind of presence on stage between each break, um, introducing what they needed to without a big musical picture like, like Encanto that came out last year. Like you say, it is a safe option. Um, has Jimmy Kimmel's hosting of the Oscars broke headlines? No, but it, it, it's done the opposite where like, I think it's like it, they're smooth sailing and they can't expect a large upset with Kimmel as a host returning now for the third time. This feels just a little desperate to me, like beyond just the safe pick of it all. And when you say, like, I wanted to find a new face, I'm with you. Like, Camille Nanjiani would have been cool. You could have made it topical with the whole uh, Chippendale series that we may or may not cover on the show, but, like, he's going to be in the spotlight again. Uh, hell, like, having co-hosts with Emily D. Gordon or, like, John Mulaney, like, you know, have that kind of comedic edge to it. Um, I would have preferred a more furry option. That's right. I'm back on my nonsense. Get the Muppets to host the Oscars, you cowards. <laughs> the Muppets! If they can be on The Masked Singer... They can host the Oscars. Yeah. And you know what? If they played up on that and just had like the opening, you know, overture and then had a giant snail come out and it's Kermit. Oh my God. I would lose my mind. That's neither here nor there. I wonder if he wants as much of like a safe quote unquote normal Academy Awards as the producers do. It just feels like a thing of we tried for the last years. We tried the Soderbergh thing in 2020. We tried the trifecta hosts and then, you know, the Will Smith debacle last year, it seems like they really want to try and bring the Oscars down to like as bare minimum as possible. And like you say, that doesn't seem like the good pick, like make the Oscars exciting and freaky and weird and like embrace those facets of cinema that you're trying to honor. It, it just feels like a desperate ploy to like bring middle America into it. Which like, yes, Jimmy Kimmel is willing to do and like he can make people laugh and he can obviously be the showman. But even as far as talk show hosts, like, John Oliver's more risque, Hassan Minaj is more risque. Like, you could bring on that dynamic more, and it just feels like they wanted to just do an Oscars. If I don't see Triple R, RRR up there nominated, we are going to riot, man. But also, I don't trust Jimmy Kimmel to make fun of RRR. Okay. Hey, did you see a piece of news I saw today of uh, yes. a sequel being in development for that movie? So not a topic at all that we're covering here for today's episode, but you're damn right. I'm going to mention it because we love that movie and the, the idea that we can have that story continue and that like that bond between the bros uh, <laughs> with all the with all the extremes that that movie has to offer. Uh, I'm still poking some friends about it and saying, hey, go watch this movie. It's worth the three hours. <laughs> being a good citizen. That's what we do. With that being said, we're going to move on to our quick hits portion of the show. This is, uh, you know, as we talked about with Triple with RRR, it's a topic of the show that either one of us wants to discuss. Uh, one minute a piece that we also put on our TikTok page that maybe doesn't lend itself to a whole discussion, but we want to get across to you guys anyways. I will toss it off to my co-host Noah Guzman for his. I will begin my quick hit in three, two, one. Hello, Westworld fans. Hello, HBO fans. I have a piece of news from the HBO and Westworld 
world and that is westworld is getting canceled after four seasons on hbo the whole show was said to be wrapped with an arc that was going to last five seasons however news just broke that we will not be getting a season five um the show creators are jonathan nolan and lisa joy but for a little bit more detail i'm going to share with you some information that i found off of a deadline article and that is i quote yesterday during a warner bros discovery q3 earnings call ceo david zaslov exclaimed the grand experiment of creating something at any cost is over and emphasized how he wasn't going to pay millions for a show that delivers a low rating. That said, an HBO insider tells us that Westworld wasn't axed over cost-cutting measures. So this is just straight from the Deadline article. I'm not entirely sure what to run with here. I'm a little over time, but I just wanted to say Westworld, it was something to watch, something to be really excited about. It was the biggest, I think, sci-fi series that had been going on on HBO for some time now with a cast that is straight up A-listed on Hollywood. Um, It's a shame that that story won't wrap up. R.I.P. May it rest in peace. Post season one, what was your favorite season of Westworld? Season four, they really did start to pick themselves up again. Like they started to tell a more connected story and start introducing more interesting plot points. Season one can be looked at as its own beginning to end story. You might even want to stop there if you just want to enjoy that isolated narrative. But then two kind of tells its own And then three was supposed to just break up the four, five story. So we kind of had one, two being like the sister seasons, three to shake things up and kind of bring us out into a new setting. And then four, five were really supposed to be tied together. So we're not getting the fifth. I'm going to miss, you know, that series that had uh, Tessa Thompson. um, Aaron Paul was just added to the cast. The list goes on, right? But Brandon, over to you for your quick hit. On to my quick hit in three, two. So uh, if you remember from about a couple episodes ago, I talked about a controversy going on with the Academy of Most Pictures and Sciences where they were like, hey, you know that Richard Linklater animated movie, Apollo 10 and a Half? It's not animated. And we were on the show going, you're insane. Well, apparently they were a bit uh, off the rocker. The Academy did announce this past week that, that Apollo 10 and a Half, as well as Marcel the Shell with Shoes On and the animated documentary Eternal Springs will all be eligible for the animated feature Oscar race this year. Side note, we reviewed both Apollo and Marcel. You can go check our page for, that, for both of those reviews. If you need a refresher, the Academy basically looked at those films and said they don't meet our requirements. And for context on that, the Academy defines an animated feature as, quote, a motion picture in which movement and character performances are created using a frame-by-frame technique and usually fall into one of the fields of either narration or abstract, as well as feature a majority of significant characters as animated figures and features animation in at least 75% of the movie. That means that with these new three uh, films added in, the animated feature race between them and movies like Turning Red, Pinocchio, Strange World just became a whole lot more fascinating. For me personally, this is absolutely well overdue. The animators on those teams uh, absolutely deserve their props. I have not seen Eternal Springs yet. I'm going to have to put it on my radar, but this is absolutely great news and it means the, and it means the animation and the, it means the animated feature race is going to be a lot more packed and more interesting and I've gone away over time. Look at that. Don't you just want to like pat the pat the Brandon who's who shared that first quick hit on the shoulder and just say, you know, we made it, you know, we we held in there, we held it together. Just like you're right, darn it. It is animated and they just need to open their eyes. What do you think the response will be from the industry about like uh, this this recognition finally coming towards a lane that has often been like underrewarded or like uh, they're not provided the same kind of spotlight as non-animated features would be given? We don't have time to go into the whole live action versus animation debacle, but I will say that when animated films are up for consideration and get the push behind the studios for awards consideration, they are given more of an audience. Like I would have never learned about movies like, you know, Song of the Sea or Taylor Princess Kaguya or, you know, the, you know, the list goes on and on about animated features that would have not gotten awards pushes. So like 
to get people more eyes on, you know, Apollo and Hap and Marcel. And again, for me, like Eternal Springs, which I never heard of, but it's about this like fascinating uh, Chinese hacking incident that happened a couple of years ago. So like, I need to check that out. It's so, like getting more of those films on people's radar and getting them to more understand as, you know, Guillermo del Toro has brilliantly put it this award season, animation is a medium, not a genre. I think that's going to be more important in the future. I think it'll be more important to getting animators jobs when it's, when it's becoming more lackluster. That's going to wrap our quick hit portion of today's episode. We'll go ahead and move on now to our review portion of the episode. And we are opening with the biggest release, the biggest box office opening for a November release. It is insane the types of financial box office glass ceilings this film has broken um it's kind of embarrassing too when you put it up against the other films that released that week i mean i'd be a little embarrassed um but what the hell these are all numbers that are in the millions so i'm sure no one's crying and if they are they're wiping their tears with the with with the hundred dollar bills uh we are talking black panther wakanda forever here will be a non-spoiler review of Black Panther Wakanda Forever. It's going to be a shorter discussion just so we can get out our strongest points for the film, provide you a rating, uh, give you our recommendation if we have it, but you know that we do. If you'd like to check out our spoiler review, it is going to be a longer discussion. You'll hear Brandon and I dive into more deeper details as we go deep beneath the sea. Um, but that is up and available now on our Plot Device uh, podcast uh, pages, Spotify, RSS feed, Apple Podcasts. Let's get into this non-spoiler review. We pick up one year after T'Challa's passing. And so now Wakanda is left without its protector. Uh, It is still regarded as a global power and the only source of vibranium that they know of. Because until now, until Taloka discovered, along with its ruler, Namor, and at risk of his home being uh, brought into the surface world he goes to wakanda for some aid which then leads to some very high tensions between the two very strong civilizations we wanted to talk about how what this film was going to accomplish in terms of being respectful towards uh the late chadwick boseman and what they were going to how they were going to handle his character um so i think we can start our reviews with like how did you feel that wakanda forever uh paid tribute to the legacy that chadwick left behind we should just mention one quick plot point real quick. Uh, Ramonda, of course, uh, T'Challa's, uh, T'Challa and Shuri's uh, mother, played by, once again, my Angela Bassett, who was brilliant in this movie, is now the ruler of Wakanda, and that is where we kind of set up the grand stakes of the movie. Just want to point that out there. Um, as far as coming into it after the passing of Chadwick, that was the biggest question that everyone had on their mind, is how do you do a Black Panther movie without Black Panther? And this movie attempts pretty much right off the back to reconcile with it. I, I won't specify exactly how the pacing of the movie goes, but you are essentially dropped very much right into the high stakes of the movie. And Ryan Coogler, much like the master that I think I can pretty much confidently claim he is, like at this point, he has not missed a movie. I would argue this is his weakest movie, but it's only because of the writing that we may or may not get into. And if you want to listen to our spoiler review and hear the details on that. But I think what it does so well is really address the idea of what happens when, yes, the ruler of a nation goes away, but like what happens when a brother, a son, a friend, you know, goes away and what does that grief do to you? And when you have responsibilities that really, you know, take precedence, how does that really work? And it kind of goes into a metatextual level as well. Like how do Kugler and Joe Robert Cole, the whole team around this movie, really deal with the passing of their star? And to me, the results more often than not are really profound and emotional and again, high stakes. I can't say that enough. Like, the stakes within the movie are not maybe as global as the first movie and maybe not as singular, but they do feel incredibly important to both 
T'Challa's legacy as a character and the legacy and resources that Shuri and Ramonda and all those characters have to kind of contend with. At the start of the film, we have our focus like really zoned in on Shuri as a character. And so when we talked about grief in our longer spoiler review, um, that's a point that I can bring over to this one as well, because Shuri, as T'Challa's sister, the moment we start with her and like really being guided by her emotions and her reactions to the world around her, uh, I thought was very grounding for what this film needed uh, without, you know, the title character black panther uh her dynamic with her mother and queen romanda exciting new introductions of characters that i won't name outright but i'm sure you've seen the trailer and i'm sure you can expect you know a, a new face to arrive in riri williams um we've mentioned his name already but it is namor also known as Kulkulkan. like he is such an exciting namor namor and he is such an exciting new face that we see in this franchise and how much time we spend with him in this movie, how much time we spend opening up into his world. Um, it pulls influences from Mesoamerican, I believe. And uh, it was cool as hell to see a Latino like Teno Tuerta take on this role, look damn good doing it and have reactions all around me. Just be like, you know, I, I, as far as I can tell, the reactions I've seen for Tenoch Huerta's Namor is that he killed it, like that it was it was really great. And so uh, that's a strong point that I wanted to get across is that in this film's, in the, when you look at the opposition of this film with Wakanda versus Talokan, you really feel the power that both of their champions um, have when they want to defend their home. First of all, Tenoch Huerta is phenomenal. He really does bring the same kind of poise and complexity, but also the very real sense of sensitivity and relatability that Killmonger brought in the first movie, but to very different degrees and to very different relationships with our protagonists. And, you know, you see that contrast between his relationship with Shuri and his relationship with Ramonda and how those different things go about. Like, how do you address someone who is, you know, the ruler of this country who, yes, is in grief, but is also very much willing to do what you think is necessary versus someone who's more malleable and more, you know, willing to accept your beliefs as in Shuri and how those different relationships go about. It's not to the degree that I was theorizing. Like, I thought there was going to be a real split in the characters. Again, without going into too much detail, there isn't really that. There's a very unified stretch of those characters we saw from the first movie and their goals and their uh, and their sense of morality. But Namor provides a really interesting contrast to that because his goals and motivations aren't that far-fetched. They don't seem all that... You know, again, the idea of him as an anti-hero is completely optimist, and Huerta really brings a lot of the dimensionality to a character who could have been so, you know, really an asshole. I wanted to talk about how special it was to see these two worlds, like, feuding in this film and not really feel so attached to the greater MCU. I will say that this film does feel like an isolated, like I say, feud between the two parties, and... It's almost making me resent the fact that they have to fit in how the rest of the world like can follow up or how the rest of the world can continue with some of these plot points. Not that there's, you should know, there isn't really heavy ones that speak to the greater, you know, we're talking this phase involves Kang. Um, we're talking this phase involves secret wars. While it doesn't speak to those things, it does speak to others, even if it's subtle. 
That may sound so vague when you're listening to this, but that's what we're trying to do here. It's not as singular as the first movie, but it brings over that singular sense of world building. Like if you separated this from the rest of the MCU, minus like a couple of the outside characters here and there, it would still feel like just a sequel to Black Panther versus a Black Panther sequel that has these other things. One character in particular I wanted to spend some time on was Okoye. Okoye steals so many of the action sequences in the first film that uh, you put her right up there with T'Challa and the both of them are just powerhouses. They are complete badasses in their own right. And Okoye being the leader of the Dora Milaje has plenty of additions to that, you know, that catalog of scenes where you're able to go back and just witness her ability and her, her brute force as their leader. I was really impressed with the action sequences that involved Okoye. Um, Brandon, with the action and like, on, was it on par with what the first film set or how did you feel and receive what that action was? And now that we have the addition of, I almost said Atlanteans, but they're Talokans, you know? I, mean, I need to find out the term for that. Yeah, Talokanians, we'll figure it out. Talokites? I'm not sure. Um, but yes, yeah, like the action is actually, I think, just as visceral as the first movie. And actually, I also noticed I, I got around to like watching, rewatching the trailer a couple times and I realized like they took the CGI notes to heart on this. Like the CGI and some of the movements of the fight is much more smooth and much more dynamic than the first movie. Because I, I think you and I kind of heard the response of like the Killmonger to Chala fight of like, ah, it looks a bit rubbery. This doesn't Dude, really yes. look like that. Because of the type of uh, emotions we see that are driven out of Namor, we just, we grow curious as to what his interactions would be had Killmonger been around this time. But not to derail, yes, it, it does. The finale, I still do have thoughts and I, you know, we, we got to it in our spoiler review, but I think that um, they did take notes after the reactions of the first film where yes, everyone loved the world building. Everyone loved just the overall culture of seeing um this this country of nothing but empowering black figures and the having the finale fight scene being like the cgi kind of like what the hell is going on um again just real quickly just real quickly the idea of like your five main cast members in this are all black women and that's unprecedented blockbuster filmmaking that should be acknowledged i'm telling y'all angela bassett drives this thing home you heard her line in the in the theatrical trailer when you go to see this movie you feel moved by just her expressions her emotions she she is queen romanda somewhere and uh make no mistake that angela bassett is is that is that woman that queen who's going to pull it off and it was exceptional you mentioned real quickly uh, Guerrero's performance who was also phenomenal in this but there's a scene in let's just say the throne room where if you're not considering them on your awards ballots you absolutely should be at this point uh, to me, just at least real quick, the biggest flaws this movie has is some of the editing. It feels a little bit choppy at times, especially, again, in that final action sequence. It feels like it's struggling too many things at once, and that also goes to some of the writing. Uh, if you were to describe this movie, the, the actual synopsis, like, we didn't describe everything that's going on in the movie, but if you really wrote everything down, it feels like a lot of different things kind of coalescing for different things, and the movie is budging at the weight of all of it. It doesn't completely collapse, but there were definitely points where I felt like you're leaving this thread detached for too long. You're not bringing this character in long enough. And it feels a little bit disparate, but for the movie it's trying to do, it absolutely works for what the main ideas are going for. And with the runtime of two hours, 41 minutes, you do feel it when it, it starts it. to like, yeah. yeah, absolutely. I wish that this story, I wish I could say that walking out of this, it felt like it, it didn't miss a beat. And I was just moving, moving, moving along with um, these, these plot points. But there was times where I just thought to myself, 
you know, why are we spending so much time here? Uh, there are other interesting things to explore and like discussions that need to be had. Why, why are we spending our time here? Is was a big question. Um, I think that a, a flaw for me was in the, it was in the costuming. Um, while we do see introductions of new, of new, you know, characters and costumes, there's also transformations to others and thoughts and feelings around <laughs> how I feel about those things. But it was something that I did kind of like take note of while I was watching this film. Yeah. Those details will be in our spoiler review when you guys get the chance to, again, see the movie and break it all down for us. For uh, getting into ratings real quick. Uh, I gave it an eight in the spoiler review. I'm actually going to bump it up to eight and a half. I do think this really did affect me a lot more than I really gave it credit for. The, th- the stuff that does well, particularly just again, particularly just again as a tribute to Chadwick Boseman and the performance to end the the legacy that he brought to to Charles the character really shines through in this. In you know Sherry's characterization and Ramon's characterization, everyone in this is going through their own arcs and their own journeys, and it feels relevant to both the stakes of the first movie and as well as to just their own internal journeys. Again, Tenoch Huerta provides just this really fascinating anti-imperialist, but also really sympathetic point of view character who provides a a villainous contrast, but also a very realistic contrast to what our characters have to face. The action is just more visceral on the technical side of it. It's still brilliant. And again, while I would certainly argue this is Ryan Coogler's weakest movie and that it's just budging at the seams everywhere, it is a perfect encapsulation of where he wants to take this world and where this cast of characters can go. So I really did it. it it's the best days for me since Eternals. For my own review, I gave this a uh, seven and a half and I'm going to keep it at that point. I thought that this movie did an, a wonderful service to um, Chadwick's hold on the character and then moving forward. They don't spend too much time, you know, wrapping up the character of T'Challa. I think because they don't have to, they know the things that they want to share. And that is how this passing and what this morning looks like for a defender of Wakanda, which I thought that they did very respectfully. We discover new worlds, new faces. It is a great addition to what we needed to be picked up off of from Black Panther. I know that some of these characters have now appeared. And if it's more than like three films or two years since I, until I see them again, I'm going to be a little bothered. But hey, at least they're here. I hope they're here to stay. And Black Panther Wakanda Forever is playing in theaters right now. It'll probably be in Disney Plus by January or February. So go check it out then if you're curious. And check out our spoiler review once you've actually gone to see the movie and talk about it all with us. Our next film is the theatrical release. It is going to be Till. And Brandon is going to provide a solo review here on this film. Yeah, I seem to have a habit for doing solo reviews of just short films that start with the letter T. I did Tar a couple weeks ago, and now we're doing Till. This is just kind of what happens. This is directed by Junon Majuku, who, uh, if you're familiar with the film Clemency with uh, Alfred Woodard from a couple years ago, I very briefly missed that period when it came out. It was very limited theatrical, but apparently got a ton of awards buzz, and I just missed out on it. This tells the story of Emmett Till, and specifically in relation to his mother, uh, Mamie Till. Uh, Mamie here, played by Danielle Deadweiler, who you guys watched uh, The Harder They Fall from last year, I think it was. Yeah, it was, uh, she was fantastic in that movie, and she uh, pops up here as Mamie Till, the mother of Emmett Till, who, if you know your history, in 1955 was beaten, shot dead, and lynched uh, in uh, Mississippi in 1955. We pick up with Emmett and his mother. Uh, they're debating whether Emmett should go visit relatives down in the South. They live in Chicago. Uh, Mamie is raising him as a single mother. Needless to say, Emmett goes down uh, to visit relatives. He, as the story goes, he whistled at a white woman named Carolyn Bryant, here played by uh, Haley Bennett. Her husband and another friend do not take that well. Uh, they take Emmett in the middle of the night from his uncle Moses, here played by John Douglas Thompson, who is also brilliant in this. 
Um, they find his body in the river, and Mamie decides, hey, the world needs to see this. And everyone says, you can't do that. And a lot of the officials in the South try to keep her from doing that. And she basically insists on having an open casket funeral for her son uh, so the world can see what terrible people have done to her son. Uh, again, this is in theaters right now. Uh, it's been getting a lot of awards buzz for De Daniel Deadweiler, and I will start by there saying she is truly brilliant in this. This is one of the best lead actress performances I've seen in recent years. She has to do so much in this movie, and and really the, the stakes of the movie and the actual the uh, the actual pacing of the movie really help her out so much. In that, when you start off, see the movie starts and ends with her, and it starts with a sense of she is a worried mother. She's constantly worrying for Emmett's safety and for his well-being, and just. Uh, you get a lot of times in the first half an hour of the movie before, you know, the actual event happens, this constant reiteration of like Emmett should be a child and like he should get to be just, you know, this immature kid and like learn from his mistakes and, you know, be who he is. And to his credit, Jalen Hall, who plays Emmett as well, is also really fantastic. They have just a great back and forth. There's a couple of like really great, lovely scenes between um, between Emmett and his mother. Whoopi Goldberg, who produces the movie, pops up in here as Emmett's grandmother, and she's quite good in this as well. She doesn't provide any sort of, like, distracting, oh, God, it's Whoopi Goldberg. Like, she's actually quite good in this. Once the actual thing happens, everything feels broken and somber and melancholy, but there's also a really respectful nature to it all. It doesn't feel... You've probably heard the word, you know, thrown around of, like, you know, trauma porn or the idea of uh, black bodies being thrown around for the sake of, you know, like, white gays and things like that. This doesn't feel like that. It feels like a true honoring of one who Emmett was as a person to the asinine jury procedures that kept the people who would later admit to killing Emmett. Like this is a real thing where they actually admitted in a magazine to killing Emmett Till and were let off because of double jeopardy. And three, just going to Mamie as a reluctant woman who you, who you get the idea very early on is not really intent on the civil rights movement, is not intent on things outside of her community. She only really cares about getting her justice for her son. And she kind of eventually has to unravel her own character arc of like, this is happening and this could happen to anyone's son or daughter or father or mother. And, you know, if you're Black in America at that time, and even now resonating to this day, there is still violence in the world and we still have to deal with that. And it becomes this very, really poignant topical exploration of that at times, it can feel a little bit too preachy, like just a little bit. The last scene you could very much argue is a bit of an Oscar Beatty scene, and I won't describe what it is, but it does feel like, you know, the, the you can picture like the grand score and like the dialogue is becoming a bit more hokey. And that kind of pops up in pieces throughout the movie. But a lot of the times, it really just completely invests you in Mamie's story and really just drives you home to her sense of like, this happened to my son, and I need the world to know this and for things to change, and however that may be. And it becomes less of a story about, you know, historical drama and more of a story about just a mother really dealing with the worst possible scenario. This is an incredibly solid eight out of 10. Like some of you might be looking at that and go, I don't need to see another movie about, you know, black people being murdered again. And fair enough. Like I would not tell you to go, you know, run out to the theaters to go explore this, but I would tell you either if you're comfortable seeing it or when it comes on VOD to absolutely seek it out. If not solely for Danielle Deadweiler, who should absolutely be in the Oscars consideration. She is truly just tremendous in this movie. You should watch it just for this alone. But Jalen Hall and Frankie Faison and, you know, Sean Patrick Thomas, uh, there's a lot of great supporting performances in this. And again, Janelle Machikwu really directs this really respectfully and really poignantly to really point aim at the systems that would keep these men out of prison and, you know, allow this kind of thing to happen, but also just really, again, gets to the heart of the idea that, like, this is a parent who lost their kid under the worst possible scenario, and it really will affect you. It's playing in theaters right now. It'll probably be on VOD very soon. I highly encourage you to go check it out.
Um, but I completely understand if it you know does not fill up your warehouse. Uh, another major awards contender for, uh, for this last year's season, Banshees of Inisherin, has been getting a lot of buzz uh, between performances. It's the return of Martin McDonough, who did three billboards outside of uh, Ebbing, Missouri. Uh, Seven Psychopaths, if you're familiar with those work. It's his reunion with uh, Brendan Gleeson and Colin Farrell outside of In Bruges. Noah, uh, this is a bit of a loaded question. What is this movie about? Oh, so much. Oh, so little. Let's jump right into it. This is a movie about two friends and how a spontaneous shift or rift in their relationship affects the both of them and their community. They live on an island just off the coast of Ireland where everyone really knows each other. So you, you're walking into a setting or a community where everyone calls each other by their names and they take note and they they are aware when there's a shift in certain relationships. So when two best friends, Podrick and Colm, played by Colin Farrell and Brandon Gleeson, are no longer the besties that they were walking into the pub the night before. The audience has questions. The pub owner has questions. Another character is Podrick's sister, Shabam, who is actually living with Podrick, and she provides like a secondary perspective onto the relationship and is, and is able to console Podrick with his budding, like, he's very, he's not resting with the fact that this relationship is over because he has no reason to believe why it why it ended in the first place or column is being such a distant figure to his once best friend that it really is painful to watch Podrick try and just grapple with the fact that maybe he lost his friend forever and it's because of an action that he did maybe it's just because column is slowly going insane maybe it's because he's all too invested into relationships that he doesn't like that don't require that type of investment. It's it raises a bunch of questions, but that's the baseline story is we have two friends. We have a divide between them. We have questions as to why and the preceding plot points that follow become shocking. They're a little wicked and we can jump right into it. But I will say this was an impressive film for its two stars. Uh, I mean, respectfully Shabam as well, but the amount of time that we spend with Farrell and Gleason on screen, Colin Farrell from The Lobster, here he delivers just an outstanding performance of, like I said, the kind of longtime friend that is so hurt, but not at the point of rage or anger yet, because this is somebody that he loves, and he's just grappling with the with the reality that maybe what he wants out of this dynamic he can no longer have, and he's not even he's not given a reason why. Like he's or at least for a part of the film, he's not. And it's I don't know. Watching this film, Brandon, my experience was that I was kind of in my seat, like just squirming because I was feeling uncomfortable. I was like, I would want to know too, had my best friend dropped me overnight and without an explanation, no note, and just resentful of me right after that. I believe it, it's kind of a familiar like shift that you might see in your relationships or we've all maybe had that friend who out of nowhere, you kind of fell out of touch with each other and you wanted to ask the questions of why, but maybe you weren't able to get to that point or reach that level of communication. Here, you have those same kind of nerves. Will we be able to talk about this? So then it makes every moment between Colm and Podrick so tense, but that's exactly where the film wants you to pay attention. I immediately said after I walked out of it, I need to see this again because I didn't really get gripped by it. And I had heard going into it about everyone calling that, like, this is the best movie of the year. It's the most intense movie of the year. You know, it, it'll absolutely wreck you. And it, yeah, like at points, it's super interesting. And it, it, and again, the performances are fantastic. 
but it really didn't grip me. And literally, as you were describing it to me, I felt a couple more of those points tuning in where I, I genuinely feel like if I watch this again, it will come into like my top 10, maybe top five of the year. But like, as of right now, I think it's good, but it's, it is slow. It is arduous. It's very much of its own setting. Um, even though you're right, once you actually get into the thematic ideas of, uh, of why Colm, you know, Brendan Gleeson's character doesn't want to be friends with Colm Farrell's character anymore. Once you actually get into that, it becomes this really poignant exploration of how friendships can dissolve. And, you know, it, it goes against what the trailer is promising of just like, oh yeah, two friends aren't friends anymore, but why? And the, but why is actually really tangibly interesting. Like you go to the, I, I, again, like to your point of, you know, you all, we all kind of have friends like that who either ghost out of our lives or just, you know, change their own point of view. And this is kind of what that is. It's that idea of if you're in the same space for too long, what happens to you? I should stop on the point that this is from Martin McDonough, who has directed three billboards outside Ebbing, Missouri. And uh, one of my one of my one of his credits that interests me is the movie Seven Psychopaths. I haven't seen it for some time, but I remember that movie being intriguing as hell and like being so much fun to watch. So I was just curious as to what uh, previous work might speak to the decisions he made here in Banshees of Inisherin. But I, I really can't say that I that I've seen a film like this we get over the question because you do. And I'm thankful that this film doesn't stretch the question of why are they not being friends? Like up until it's, it's an hour and 54 minutes up until like the 90 minute mark. No, you actually know within the first hour and then the reactions that both of them have and the steps Podrick may take to mend that and calm takes to actually like intensify what continuing you know, what pressing on him means makes this a very unique story to say the it's least. Also, it's also weirdly a movie about consent. Like it's the idea of like Colm who, if Patrick really cares about his friend, just the idea of like respect his wishes and like leave him be. And like, if he does ask for you, like, you know, be there for him. But Patrick kind of doesn't do that. He does everything in his power to, you know, pester and be in his life. And that's kind of what continues the quote unquote story of the movie. And I found that kind of fascinating to just be that thing of just like, if you really care about someone in that vein, like how much do you try to like push yourself into their life again? And that's not to say that Colm is here as like this, you know, a stubborn figure that says, don't talk to me and I will not do anything to give you the impression that I want this relationship to continue because there are moments where Colm does fold and he he takes actions which are, I think, rooted in the friendship that they once had and not in this like disdain that he now feels. This is a very particular film uh, made even more special with Barry Cogan's addition yeah. and Dominic Kearney. He plays a very, um, he very, he plays a touched boy. You know what I mean? Like he's very, he's like the goof of the island. <laughs> and he's, he's also, head. he's in his own head. He is the, uh, the main like cop on the island's son. Um, we don't like the cop. The cop beats his kid. It's terrible. Um, but Dominic, Kogan's character is a, he's I can't say a sweetheart and like really believe that because he is like uh, he will make you uncomfortable and he's like inappropriate but he really is like uh, an independent force and he has this relationship with Podrick where uh, well we do spend time with them most of the time they're drinking a lot of people on this island drink all the time um, but Dominic speaks to the fact that Podrick is one of the nicest people on the island and while other island members like they support that claim. Podrick thinks that 
you know, maybe being nice is not enough. Or if it is enough, like, why is it it enough to save this, my favorite relationship? And that is one of, that's a very big point. And it's something that I think affected me while watching it, because it's a fair question, you know, is nice enough? And when is nice, you know, when do you need more than that? And when some, when that's all somebody can provide you, where's there to go? Whatever issues I might've had initially with the tone and the setting and like the actual writing style of the movie, Almost all of that is nullified by, as you mentioned, the four main performers. Like Colin Farrell has pretty much always been brilliant, but I feel like since Saving Mr. Banks, he's been going through this thing where he just keeps picking really interesting off-kilter roles, whether it's, you know, again, like the lobster, you know, you know, take your pick of everything he's done this year. But like this, he's truly tremendous in, and he really, again, like you bring up the idea of like the nice guy, and he really tries to like turn that angle on his head and how that can really, how that can really act as a detriment. Brendan Gleeson, who is also not a perfect character by any stretch. He obviously has his, you know, flickers of it and he brings that so well. Carrie Condon, I don't know about you. I did not know her at all. She's brilliant in this. She's so good as Siobhan. I absolutely love her dynamic with Colin Farrell's character. Um, she has some of the funniest moments of the film where like she'll kind of call them both out on their nonsense. Uh, and Barry Keown, who is also going through his thing of like picking weird off kilter roles. He's so good in this and he doesn't pop up that much, but every time he does, he offers like either a nice compliment or like kind of the likable sleazebag, if you want to call it that. But like every moment with all four of their characters is just so profound and interesting. Are you saying you didn't recognize the voice of Friday Iron Man's AI, Brandon? Oh, from uh, uh, from the later Iron Man movies, Infinity right? War. Yeah, from Infinity War. Yeah. Oh, okay. yeah. I, and I'm not saying that like as if I knew at all. <laughs> I, I didn't even IMDb, know that. I have the IMDb page pulled up, but she is really excellent. Her character is more so... The one on the island who uh, is, you know, she's a very heavy reader. Um, as she even, I think, is, I think Podrick actually asked her if she's depressed, but she's not. She's just, I think, longing for like something different or like something bigger. Um, and, that's, so she gets, and that goes to kind of that goes kind of comparison between her and Cole. Whereas, like, what does depression do to different people? There's one other character who I think is special in this film, and that is that maybe I can't even pull up her name. I want to say it's Mrs. McCormick because that sounds like the familiar character name. Played by uh, Sheila Flinton. Sheila Flinton. And the movie is called The Banshees of Anishtran. What is a banshee? A banshee is somebody who wails at the sight of death, right? Or maybe their wailing brings about death. Couldn't really tell you. Didn't do my mythology uh, research. Um, But I will say that for the movie to be a very like based in realism kind of film, her place in this is intriguing you know she walks around she's very she's this cloaked old woman and you she gives the allure that she's the witch of the island like that she is that banshee and so how they end up using her i thought was i felt like i got it like i felt like that was smart how did you feel about her her place in this She's just a bit of magical realism. Like, you can't quite tell what her point in the story is, but every time she shows up, you can't take her eyes off of her, and Pedrick kind of has this weird pseudo-mother-son relationship with her whenever she pops up. It's this weird character, and it shouldn't be in the movie, but it kind of works. Uh, one more character I have to, of course, uh, give some flowers to is going to be Podrick's donkey or pet pony. I'm not really sure if it's a miniature pony or if it's a donkey. Oh, uh, uh, Jenny, right? I believe it's Jenny. Uh, that is that is one of Podrick's. Uh, Ryder dies, always beside him, takes trip with him to the pub, has to wait outside, unfortunately. No 
no miniature ponies allowed inside the house or inside the pub. Um, but Podrick's relationships to his to his animals that he keeps around his home, uh, I found to be very special and always treated with like the, the film knows how to use its setting and knows how to use its characters, both human and like animal. And I, I found that to be so like inviting for me to just be on this island with them. Throughout this film, I was in awe with the uh, with the visual approaches that they took. I uh, found the cinematography to be outstanding. Um, it, it gave me the impression that this was who, what else did the cinematographer do out, out of curiosity? So I'm glad you brought that up because Ben Davis has done a lot of Marvel stuff. Oh my gosh. So many director of photography credits. Oh, yeah, he, um, he did a Stardust. Tunnels, he did, yeah, he did Stardust. He did Dr. Strange. Uh, he did three billboards. He worked with Marvin Dunn before. Well, it, this movie is, it's a film to watch for me. It, it was only elevated with my uh, with the theater experience had i seen it at home i would feel i think very strong for it but i was overall like i was kind of moved with the with the types of um filmmaking approaches it took for a story that doesn't have big sci-fi sequences or like insane action it's like you don't need that because this is a very dramatic tale and i think it is i think it was written well and i found myself really invested in what culmination of all these pieces was going to lead to let's get into ratings then um for me seven and a half and i'm only saying that i am only saying that because one i saw this movie and i was very tired and it's very slow and it's very doldrums i need to watch it again i acknowledge that but i also acknowledge it's very good like even as i'm talking about it every time i put this movie together there's something new that clicks for me i can almost guarantee you when i watch this movie again it will wind up pretty high on my list as it has for basically every other critic in the universe um again all four of the main performances are fantastic Farrell, gleason uh, Condon and Keown. As we mentioned, Ben Davis' cinematography is immaculate. The movie looks glorious. And I think it's probably McDonough's maybe most personal movie that I've seen him do. It is a fascinating portrait of like how friendships dissolve, how depression can affect that, how staying in one place in your life and that kind of sedimentary lifestyle can really be of a detriment. And Lord knows I needed to see that on certain occasions. Um, but yeah, it, it really does work. It's under two hours long. It's playing in theaters. I would certainly encourage you to check it out. It just didn't affect me the very first time that I watched it. I must have been under someone's spell watching this movie because for me, the number I got written down is a nine out of 10. Yeah, I thought, I thought, although this film, like I said, did not have the elements that I always look for in my big theatrical pictures. Um, even when I'm going to see like horror and I'm looking for like that kind of shock value, let me tell you, this film definitely still has that. Um, it has a bit of wackiness to it. I love Farrell as a lead. Uh, if you, you know, this is just my short rack, go see The Lobster. Please stream The Lobster. It is outstanding. And here, Farrell is holding it together all the same. Um, he's got a stellar cast to back him up as well. It poses, it poses some interesting questions and situations that I think they never leave you with a sense of, you know, for me, they, they do provide a sense of closure. And I think that that's very important for a story like this, where you have so many questions at the beginning and you're just kind of teased for a little bit as to whether you're going to get them or not. By the time we reach the end and we have, like I said, the, the closure that they've expressed, I felt happy. I felt like content. I felt like I did just see a whole ass like play out of what it looks like for these two people to just work on a relationship um, at, at points to the extremes and at points just 
you know, from the beginning, it was very subtle and they're interesting characters to follow. Uh, I do want to rewatch this movie. I want to show it to people who know nothing about it and to see what the reactions might be. And it's, it's for sure a recommendation on my list. Nine out of 10 for Banshees. We're going to move on now to Netflix's Jordan Peele produced animated film, Wendell and Wild. Uh, yeah, Jordan Peele produced Henry Selleck directed. Uh, let's make that clear because this is uh, his return from Nightmare Before Christmas and Coraline, you know, master of stop motion. Uh, this has been developed at Netflix for a while. And then Jordan Peele, of course, got in contact. And then he said, let's do a full blown Key and Peele reunion. And that's kind of what we're getting in this. Uh, we follow a young girl named Kat. Uh, this is again also based off an original idea, by the way. Uh, we follow a young girl named Kat, uh, voiced by Lyric Ross from This Is Us. She is living in this small uh, rural town uh, called Breastbank uh, with two parents. This isn't a spoiler. They die at the very beginning. It's before the credits. I swear it's not a spoiler. Uh, we then follow Kat a couple of years later. She is at a boarding school run by James Hong's character, uh, as well as Angela Basket, who pops up in here as well. She's just having one hell of a year. Um, and Kat is going through a lot of stuff. She's incredibly isolated. She doesn't really connect with the other kids. Um, she does meet a young boy named Raul, played by... Uh, and eventually we get this kind of really convoluted story that comes about uh, where she meets her demons here, Wendell and Wilde, voiced by Keegan-Michael Key and Jordan Peele. Uh, they are not on great terms with their dad, who is another demon voiced by Bing Rames, but that demon happens to have this kind of magical hair cream who can bring, who can, who as they find out, can bring things back from the dead. So Wendell and Wilde decide, hey, we want to build this like creepy demon theme park so all we need to do is convince Kat, who's a thing called a Hell Maiden, which we never really get the clear cut of what that is, but she has some sort of influence over what they do and say. So they're like, okay, you know what? We're going to bring back your parents, Kat. And in return, you have to help us with what we're doing with the steam park kind of thing. Uh, you know, and, and machinations unfold. James Hong character gets involved. All beyond that, there is also a whole plot with one of the other students' parents who kind of run the town, uh, who want to set up a fire in prison. They get in touch with James Hong's character. There's a lot of corruption in school. It's a lot of a movie for just this, but it is basically boils down to Cat is going through things, Wendell and Wilde are trying to help, and things go bad. Noah, uh, how much experience did you have with uh, Pedri Salak as the master of stop motion that he is, as I mentioned, Night Before Christmas and Coraline? I know we have experience with Jordan Peele. We talked about Nope earlier this year. Do those forces coming together in this kind of weird, macabre, you know, late Halloween experience that we got, did it work for you? I'm coming at this with a bias, okay? Stop motion, it's rarely for me. I think that even in early pictures, like you mentioned, Coraline, and before that, The Nightmare Before Christmas, it does freak me out. Like, stop motion, I'm one of the people who can watch it and just kind of go, just the way that these characters are moving, it just, it always left me a little bit like, uh, I don't know. You know, some people have their weird quirks. That's one of mine. Stop motion can actually get me a little bit like, makes my makes my hair raise and makes me go like, oh, this is, this is almost, it's too um, inhuman. There's uh, something like uh, uncanny is the word that I'm looking for. Thank you. But big things that I attach to from this is at the title of the film, Wendell and Wild, uh, having those be the Keegan-Michael Key and Jordan Peele uh, being involved with their wacky designs, with their uh, with their insane feature of having this, like, like you say, this hair cream that can reanimate life and how they explore that, you know, what their banter is back and forth. They, for me, were the most important, was the most interesting parts of the film because I was always watching them for what they were going to do next. Uh, when it came to Cat, it was, it's, it's a story that starts off in tragedy and you really, 
you want it to go a certain way for, for her so that she can feel at peace, but you know, the type of approach she takes instead, which is I'm instead going to like, kind of, you know, keep, keep love away from me or keep myself away from the world. Um, until she becomes a hell maiden. I I'm not recalling exactly what introduces her to this hellscape, you know, connection. Uh, but it is, I think it takes approaches to like the demon world and like what it means to like, uh, explore that space. Uh, they don't do it so dark, but they have a sense of fun to their underworld, which I really admired. I really did like James Hong as the, you know, the priest or the pastor that was involved. And when he's, he's reanimated, when he's reanimated, he just gets funnier. Um, there are still dark moments, but we don't really need for them to be from the demons. Instead, we have them from our dark human characters who, uh, prefer like greed over or greed and the lust for power over, uh, you know, fostering community. And I found that to be like, you know, the horror of this movie. Cause Wendell and Wilde, they're wacky, but villains, they are not. I desperately wanted to love this movie. And to be fair, there are things that I do love about it. You mentioned the whole stop motion thing. I will admit that was a thing to me when I was younger where like stop motion did have the uncanny thing to me, but I've grown to really, I, again, because I'm an animationer, I've learned to, re- I've grown to really love and appreciate everything it does and sell it is kind of a master at what he does. Like, it is truly just a visual marvel. Like, some of the things that I've seen in this movie, I have never seen in another stop-motion movie, whether it's some of the stuff with um, Wendell Wilde's dad, like, and and his scale of size, or some of the stuff where, like, there's a musical number where, like, they're bringing back, like, a couple of, like, the people who are in the town. Like, there's things about this movie visually that I couldn't believe that I was seeing, and I was just kind of salivating, like, oh my god, like, the crap behind this is so cool. Um, and I like Lyric Ross in this a lot. Like, she does a lot in, really, as you go through the movie, unraveling the layers to Kat's depression and her anxieties and her sense of, she feels a sense of responsibility for the fact that her parents are gone and, like, that she has to carry on their legacy and that somehow the town's burden is on her. And I really did feel that. Um, beyond the fact that we also just get a Key and Peele reunion. Like, no one's talking about that. We got Key and Peele back, and that's super cool, and they're super fun, and they get to improvise a lot of the dialogue, and all of that is super great. Um, and as you mentioned, James Hong and, like, Angela Bassett, there's a lot of, like, great supporting performances in there. At the end of the day, though, the biggest issue with the movie is just how bloated it is. Like, I talked about Wakanda Forever and how that script can feel bulging. This is, like, bursting. Like, the buttons are coming off the pin. It's like, there's too much in this movie. They don't explain what the Hell Maiden is. They don't really understand, like, a lot of the context behind, like, how the demon world and the human worlds interact. They just kind of do the thing. Um, I love the vibe behind it. I love the energy behind it. And I was totally enthralled by, you know, the actual emotion behind it. There's even a scene that really just made me tear up. But like, even getting to like the baseline of the story, there's a lot more to it. And I don't think there needs to be. As Brandon says, like when it jumps from point to point, like before we even get a description of what a Hellmaiden is, we find out that there's another like veteran Hellmaiden or a former Hellmaiden in uh, another character. And b- before we are, uh, spend more time with that, we go to, our, it's not her mentor, but it's like her partner that she works with. Um, it, Who is not really given that much until like the very end. So there is a lot to be distracted by. And I'm worried that that's what happened while I was watching it is I, I just couldn't um you say that there was one film in particular at banshees where you found it maybe difficult to like latch somewhere and for me that's what kind of happened here uh whenever wendell and wild though took the screen that's when i was watching because i i loved what they had to do in their world uh 
and I was more just engaged with that stuff over uh, what Kat was going through with um, her character's journey. I I think I did also just want to like this more because being a big Peel fan uh, and also just looking to this as like an opportunity for like darker animation to be explored. Um, maybe the worlds are unique enough to excite you if, if you are tuned into like a, a claymation movie like this. But I got to say, when now that I'm thinking about it, when it comes to stop motion, it makes me think, like, why do we spend so much time in the spooky realm, right? Like Frankenweenie, um, Corpse Bride. And I think that that's a topic of interest, uh, well, neither well, here nor like, there. It goes like the idea of what you're saying about, like, the uncanniness of it all. Like, if you have these puppets and, you know, uh, marionettes and kind of the uncanniness, of, like, that doesn't feel real, you can make the horror of it pop a bit more. And this does, this does do that on occasion. Have I seen it a little younger? I might have thought it was a little spookier than Coraline, but Coraline still takes the helm for like being. Yeah, no the, questions. Yeah. <laughs> Buttons for eyes. Are you kidding? This doesn't have anything near the ending taste from Coraline. So, like, let's get that out there. But I will say, like, yeah, going to your point, I don't think I'd show this to young kids. Like, I could totally see this as being Halloween classic, but like, I wouldn't show this to anyone like younger than six. Like, there's too much like creepy, demonic energy to it where I'd just be like, if I watched this as a kid, I'd probably be a little freaked out by it. But again, maybe not to the degree of like other stop motion movies. I do want to just quickly say, you know, if we're talking Black Panther again, you know, that soundtrack is great. This soundtrack slaps. I love this soundtrack so much. Like it's got like a beige and death and um, uh, death grips and vest tumor. It is an amazing TV on the radio uh, needle drop towards the very end. That's fantastic. I just need to get it. It's all like black punk and alternative musicians. And it's freaking great. And I hope it exposes more people to really great music. A rating for me on Wendell and Wild is going to be uh, a six out of ten. But I, I mean, you got to understand that the bias I came f- going into it is my own. And so, if you find that that's not something that um, you relate to, then you might actually enjoy this uh, a fair bit. It comes from a familiar creator, uh, from some probably one of your favorites. I, I can't think that I know too many people who don't like either Coraline or The Nightmare Before Christmas or, you know, the combination of the two. Here, I think I just need to spend a little bit more time with it, perhaps a rewatch, uh, perhaps not with just myself so I can see like kind of how others enjoy it as well. Um, but the it's most, uh, the best takeaways for this are going to be the return and another take with uh Keegan-Michael Key and Jordan Peele just really owning their characters and uh, again, putting their like their perfect dynamic on display for us all to enjoy. And uh, that may be a reason enough for me to go back and enjoy this world. My head and my heart are fighting each other. You don't understand. Um, seven and a half. It's good. The things about it are great, are really, truly great. But, but I can't... I can't be that guy to like give Banshees a seven and a half and give this higher when this is way, way more of a mess. Because again, just the writing doesn't really know what to do with itself, but the dialogue is great. And like the heartfelt moments are super good. Again, there's at least one moment that made me tear up on this. Lyric Ross is great. You know, it's great to have King Michael Key and, you know, uh, Jordan Peele back in that comedic vein and getting to bounce off one another. And I can't stress enough. The animation is spectacular. I'm, even though this is a mess, I'm now putting it on my ballot for animated feature just to see what the result of that would be. Because I do think it's just so interesting and uniquely singular amongst the animated features we've gotten this year. It is streaming on Netflix. It's got a limited theatrical release. I don't know if it does any more, but at least it did. Uh, if you can see it out of theater, I'm a bit jealous of you. But if you can see it on Netflix, it is absolutely a great kind of like late Halloween, you know, post-fall type movie to experience, even if it is a mess. 
Spending no more time in Spookyville. October is past us. We're well on our way to December, but we're still here in November. We are going to instead move past Halloween season and go towards Netflix's latest release. It is a sequel. It stars Millie Bobby Brown. It's got Henry Cavill in there, Helena Baum Carter. We are talking Enola Holmes 2, baby. It's the second one. Uh, It's back from 2020, uh, which was one of my biggest pleasant surprises of the decade so far. Like, I really like that first Enola Holmes movie a lot. Uh, this is, once again, uh, directed by Harry Bradbeer, who you might know from uh, Fleabag and a couple other things, starring Millie Bobby Brown, of course, from Stranger Things, who produces this as well. She returns as Enola Holmes, the uh, the younger sister of the legendary Sherlock Holmes, who is pro- uh, who's once again in this movie played by Henry Cavill. We pick up from the events of the first movie, and Enola has started her own detective agency, and surprise, surprise, because it's the 1800s, and she is a young woman, people don't really take her seriously, so she's struggling to make ends meet. Until a young girl uh, walks into her shop and says, uh, hey, I work at this matchstick factory. My sister Sarah has gone missing. No one really cares about her. And Enola jumps at the chance to uh, to actually get out and get a case of her own, of which it turns out this is actually connected to a case that her brother Sherlock is working on. They kind of cross paths at different points during the film. Also thrown in the mix is Lewis Partridge as Tewksbury, uh, the kindly lord who just took his place in the House of Lords, who may or may not be Enola's love interest for the first movie. Like, there's a fun back and forth from there. We also get David Thewlis uh, back in another Netflix project here as Grail, the probably corrupt inspector who is constantly on both Enola and Sherlock's tail. Uh, and Susan Bocoma as Edith, who uh, is uh, Enola's mentor. Helena Bonham Carter, as you said, as Eudoria, who's uh, Enola and Sherlock's mother. And Sharon Duncan Brewster as Mira Choi, who's kind of the uh, assistant to the whole thing. She's kind of tra- keeping track of the whole notes and helping Noah wherever she can. Uh, <clears throat> Noah, I want to go over to you first, because you still have not seen the first Enola Holmes movie. I would contend watching this, you don't need that much of a backstory on the first movie. Do you agree? I mean, there's a case to be cracked, and Enola Holmes is the one to crack it in her own unique uh-huh. fashion. <laughs> in her own unique fashion. And I found myself, you know, right on board from the beginning. No, did I, no, did I grasp, you know, every dynamics between herself and the other characters who returned well it's a sequel like of course they're going to have continuations or at least like there's going to be familiarity there that's expected to follow from viewers of the first i just picked this one up by the second but didn't find myself that far behind um enola as a character i think is so perfectly related to the sherlock holmes but also her very own person and that's what i admired about her character is i'm watching somebody who has the likenesses of like i'm going to get to the bottom of this no matter what kind of evidence i need to find next and her actions that she takes when she has to get out of situations you know she is a she's a teenage girl in no way is she you know a, a combatant but she can get herself uh, where she needs to go by any means necessary. She lives in this character of Enola Holmes. And so when I get around to watching the first one, I'm sure I'll be just as impressed. Um, and I can kind of rank, you know, where those performances lie for, for Brown's portrayal of, of the Holmes sister. Where the film starts to become a little complicated for me is in its reveals of its mystery. I think we have about like three or four fake outs as to what's going on underneath the scene. Uh, you mentioned the character of Grail and how at much, at most points of the story, the eyes are on him, but it, in a way they, they can introduce other potential threats without uh, negating the fact that Grail might be, you know, the snake amongst all of us it's those points that I think having seen the first one, maybe I could have got like 
how the mystery unfolds and if they follow that same pattern. Uh, but here it, it did just kind of become an effort for me to be like, okay, now we, th- now we think it's him or wait, no, wait, it's supposed to be, it's, it's over, it's over there. Now it's on them or, whoa, what's, what's, what's the focus here? Um, where can I put my suspicion? Cause at times I just didn't even know where to place it, but I wanted to just stay with Enola because she, like I said, she's the one to follow. Um, Brown owns the character and it was nice to see Cavill kind of in the Sherlock Holmes role for much longer than I expected. I I'd expected Sherlock Holmes to be a cameo in the Enola Holmes story, but Brandon, please speak to, um, you know, your early points as well for the film as your reaction. But I do want to hear from you, you know, does Sherlock Holmes retain that kind of presence in Enola Holmes's life uh, as he did in the first film? And I kind of have the same question for her, their mother as well, because she seems like a character who is like, who shows up when she needs to, but is for all intents and purposes occupied with her own business. They both get more prominent roles in this. And, you know, slight spoiler for the first movie, Helena Bonham Carter is basically in like two scenes in the first movie. Like she pops up at the very beginning and the very end. And here she gets to be a lot more really urgent and have a lot more agency. And it's super fun. Like there's a great kind of uh, breakout sequence where she helps Enola and uh, Edith kind of, let's just say do a thing regarding Grail. And it's really fun and it's really, uh, it's really kinetic and there's a lot of great, uh, there's a lot of great action beats like that regarding the film. I'm also so glad that you agree with Millie Bobby Brown on this. She is phenomenal in this. She completely owns the role. She's so charming and lovely and just super funny in the role. But she, there's also like a really great gravitas to her. Like you do feel Enola's struggles throughout the movie. You do feel the sense of like, why can't I be on that level? But she also doesn't, she also doesn't really want to be like there's a lot of great back and forth between her and Sherlock is this kind of thing of you know he wants to help he wants to be the responsible brother and Henry Cavill is you know quite good in this obviously but there is that thing with Enola where she kind of doesn't want to be she's seen what Sherlock does and like getting invested in his work and like she wants to be more on the ground level it reminded me like I know you don't really read the comics but like you know the dynamic of like Batman and Nightwing kind of thing where like Nightwing is so concerned about becoming the obsessive detective that Bruce has always been, that he tries to like level himself and keep himself grounded. And I kind of got the same dynamic in there. And it really works in kind of that light and dark dynamic. And having not seen Fleabag, but having absolutely spent time with Killing Eve, uh, director Harry Bradbeer and his his work with his characters, uh, this might just very well be like a uh, a writer's thing. But even then, Bradbeer is credited as one of the writers but I just want to know, you know, is he making the actions for our characters to like break fourth walls for Enola to be as much of a presence in her world as she is in the audiences? Because that is just lovely. And Brown's type of uh, <laughs> her facial switches when she's talking to us, the audience versus the characters that surround her. And she has to take on more of like the disguised appearance. Just for me, like it, it had me rolling every single time she did it. There's one scene in particular where she shows up to like a ball and she's under the impression she's there undercover, of course. And so she's under the impression that it's a masquerade. And so she shows up and she's just ridiculously like, appearing with her mask only to break her character and look towards the camera and just be like, I like, Oh, no mask. I must've got this wrong because nobody else in the room has them on. And I, I don't look to uh, Brown, Millie Bobby Brown as a comedic uh, force, but here I definitely found myself, you know, admiring her performance and yeah, chuckling along with her whenever she, um, whenever she's given the work and the space to do it. But that's the great thing is like, not only does she get the chance to be funny, she's given funny material. Like even just going to that ball scene where she walks up to the, um, uh, to like the, the matchstick there and, 
And he's just like, you can't talk to my son without a chaperone. And Jessica Gabriel's like, kidding me? And it's like, yeah, of course she would have that kind of like, you know, incessant need to just belong and like do her own thing. Cause like, that's, that's just keeping consistent with the character, but she's allowed to be that kind of really messy over the top kind of character that we don't get to see in stuff like junior things. I spoke on the action a little bit earlier, but it, it does get a little intense for Enola at, at points where, especially when she's facing off against Grail to, to the degree where I said, oh damn, like they're actually like, you know, she, she's taking punches. Her life is on the line. I expected it to be like a family feature, not necessarily geared towards children, but absolutely for family. But here I thought it does get a little bit intense and more so than I expected. And so that was a nice surprise. A little bit, but yet I'd still argue this is very much for families. Like, it still has that kind of, like, precocious kind of bouncy pacing to it. Like, I feel like I could show, like, my younger cousins this and, like, they don't get a total kick out of it. And it moves along really well. Like, the, the mystery, like, as you say, gets a bit convoluted. But, like, the way they put little pieces in, like, the little reveals are bl- are plentiful enough where, like, you can still keep track of it. I was going to say, the movie's going to be rated R, Brandon, because it is really hard. <laughs> it is really hard to figure out. Um, and you know, there's guns a children's in this movie. movie. If there's a children's movie I guarantee, or a family movie, I guarantee you, everybody under the age of 25 is as confused as I am. <laughs> uh, but it, it is a lovely film. Tell us, did you cover the first one? I did. You can go check out my review for ASU Odyssey. Uh, it was super fun and exciting, and I had a great time reviewing it. Uh, I would definitely watch a third one of these, would you? Having not seen the first, this is my first, so I'll see a second one. But you know what? I'll see the you one. I'll Fair see the enough. Two. I watched it. I'll see the one. I've seen the two. Yeah, this is this is unique enough, and it puts Millie Bobby Brown in a different space where she's not next to the skyscraper um, lizard, and she's also facing off against a demigorgon. And those are the two instances and only examples that I have for her. So, uh, yeah, let's return to Enola Holmes's world. She didn't have to reach out her hand staringly. Uh, as far as ratings go, I gave the first movie, I think, an eight and a half, and I'll go one below this. This is an eight. Uh, it's not as charming as the first. It doesn't move quite as, as well as the first, but like the mystery is bigger. The characters are more important, and, and Noel's relationship with Sherlock is tested a bit more. But again, like it's super funny and super exciting and kinetic, and it just moves by. Millie Bobby Brown, again, I keep saying this, like if you've only seen her from Stranger Things, this is a perfect you know, a gateway to her talent. <laughs> And I think we're going to be seeing a lot more of her in the future. Harry Bradbeard's directing style, like you say, it's a bit distinct. It can be a bit of an acquired taste, but I really appreciate it. I would love to see more of these. And it's just super fun. My own rating, this is going to be a seven and a half out of 10. Um, I really do mean that though, with like the big grin on my face, because I had so much fun with this film. Um, yes, the stars are amazing. Uh, Yes, the the type of fun it has with the audience. The audience feels like its own character, at least from my experience. And uh, I'm going to I'm going to return to this when I think I have a moment to be like, okay, I'm going to sit here and I want to watch it, but I want to understand it. Um, but it absolutely can be something I just throw on for fun. So uh, seven and a half out of me. I want Enola Holmes three, but I am going to take the time to go see the first one and just kind of see uh, what it's what its initial movie was able to achieve and uh, then kind of like stack it up against the sequel. We are through with our review portion of today's episode. Thank you for sticking with us with a very hefty type of coverage we're giving to you on this episode 39. Uh, But don't go anywhere just yet. We have one TV show that we are going to review at the end of today's episode. And we are talking. What's happening? I thought you weren't doing TV on the main show anymore. Oh, wait, wait. Brandon, is that our third host, the Jiminy the Cricket? Jiminy, 
Jiminy, go back, go back to that failure of a Pinocchio movie and come back when you're the Guillermo del Toro, Jiminy. I'm a nice guy. What can I say? Moving on, we're talking Disney Plus's Marvel series, She-Hulk. The series has wrapped some time ago. Uh, we were considering covering it. We were considering not. Ultimately, we said, let's deliver coverage to the people. So we are talking She-Hulk and Brandon. You got it. This movie, I mean, this series does a lot, but you got a brief synopsis to provide to our listeners. Yes, I do. Uh, She-Hulk Attorney at Law. This is based on the comics character Jennifer Walters, a.k.a. She-Hulk. It's created by Jessica Gao, who you might know from her work on stuff like Rick and Morty and Silicon Valley. We pick up with Jennifer Walters, uh, here played by Tatiana Maslany, which if any of you are are from Black fans, huzzah, she's getting more work. Fantastic. Uh, She is Jennifer Walters. She's the cousin of Bruce Banner, a.k.a. the Hulk, but she has no interest in being uh, a part of that life. She's working in L.A. uh, for a law firm at, at the start of the series. Uh, we see her interacting with Bruce on just a couple of like, family gatherings. And then something happens. It's a bit weird. We might dive into it if we talk about spoilers. But needless to say, the result of that is that she gets some of Bruce's bloods uh, uh, transfused into her body and becomes a Hulk. And that becomes a bit of a complication for her at her workplace. She then takes a job at a different law firm as the head of their superhuman law department alongside her friend Nikki, here played by the fantastic Ginger Gonzaga, uh, alongside Pug, played by Just Cigar. If any of you are Arrow fans, you might recognize him from there. And the whole series is supposed to play as a sitcom style. Uh, we kind of uh, jump from episode to episode where different cases are happening. There is an underlying uh, through line to the series where there is an online organization that is kind of um, uh, tasked with that has kind of tasked themselves with defacing Jennifer's good name. We also see the return of Emil Blonsky, aka Abomination, here played by uh, Tim Roth once again from the Incredible Hulk movie. If you remember that from years ago uh he's kind of reformed his life so to speak as a self-help guru who may or may not be on jennifer's side she's helping him with the case and you know stuff happens in there kind of works uh noah this has gotten a bit of controversy for a variety of reasons how much did you really appreciate the actual style and substance of it and by the time it ends do you think the risks it take paid off by the time this series ended i thought to myself who is tatiana maslani how come i have not seen her on my screen more often you never watched orphan black I never watched Orphan Black. Oh, treat yourself. That sounds like something that I knew, but I was thinking of an anime. Of an anime. Anyways, um, yes, absolutely. Did I think that Tatiana Maslany made this series for me? At the start of it, I was sorry. I was on the bandwagon with everybody else that said, this CGI looks so damn laughable. Why am I watching Sir Shrek? Why am I watching Fiona as a lawyer? Like, and, but she's, she Hulk, like, why, like, what's, what's, what's going on here? Like, I have nothing but questions and I'm kind of like avoiding it. That being said, I just bit my tongue and I was like, oh my gosh, no, like, shut up. Just watch, just watch the show. And I did just that. And I'm walking out a fan. I think that uh, the show and how, and, and the types of instances it creates for our character, she Hulk for Jennifer Walters. Um, it does so much more than, uh, than, what people may have wanted, which was, you know, I want to see She-Hulk kind of like breaking, breaking people left and right and becoming this like strong foe who's like always shattering streets and like just flexing their muscles. I don't really know what people wanted out of a She-Hulk series. Uh, I had early imaginations of like, oh, it's going to be a uh, courtroom sitcom. So I guess we're going to see like different supers every episode and like she's going to use her wits but at at night or like 
in between cases, she's going to be this Hulk figure that like goes one-on-one with these people. I had no idea what to expect. Uh, but then I started watching it and I realized that like, it has so much more to do with She-Hulk being a, uh, a woman in her thirties, having a professional career independent for, um, independent in her career and being constantly like it's the people around her specifically like men who are trying to box her into certain definitions. And this show is, if there's anything she's, she Hulk smashing um, your expectations for what a character like this can be. Um, You know, there's plenty of examples of it when it comes to um, what does a she Hulk do when she wants to start dating or um, why is it that Jennifer Walters can control her rage so much more than somebody like Bruce Banner, who has been dealing with the Hulk for like cinematically over a decade. Um, It introduces a lot or it at least covers a lot, but those are my big notes. It's like, I I ended up walking out going like, damn, that actually was a good time. I'll admit when I first started the series, it wasn't totally working for me and I couldn't tell what it was. Like it wasn't necessarily the story. It wasn't necessarily the humor. It certainly wasn't Tatiana Maslany, who, as you mentioned, is fantastic in this and this is coming from someone who really loved her in black and here she gets to be you know funny and weird and eclectic and like she totally makes it work like i i really genuinely believe the whole series rests on if you believe her as a character and she totally makes it work like she embodies the best and worst of jennifer's uh, personality like she's allowed to be constantly on the brink of you know wondering what's going to happen next but that's kind of the point of the series and it really drives it through the tone takes a while and I'll admit it didn't really start working for me until episode four or five uh, and in a nine episode series that can be a bit weird. It did take me a bit of readjustment to be like, this is a sitcom. Okay, well, should I be, you know, paying attention to all the overarching things? No, but it really wants you to be. So it's kind of a series that wants to have it both ways and I don't think really works both ways. That being said, the last couple of episodes do kind of tie everything together. And I have to admit, they really did work for me, at least as far as just the individual stories go. Uh, and where that approach goes to take. And if there is a season two, I hope they kind of continue to take that approach of not making it so serialized. But at the same time, it's a bit hit and miss. I can take the good with the bad, but I'm not going to call it out for, you know, for what people have been describing it as. Although I will certainly say the effects is a conversation we do need to have. I mean, if I called out Moon Knight for its initial, like, chase scene in episode one looking terrible, I should write essays about this this series. But... I don't want to get stuck on that point because you've heard it. In its defense, it does try to use the She-Hulk character to its to its natural progression for what it has to use it for. Like it'll use wide shots or it'll limit action sequences or you know maybe not limit them because in the first episode I think that action sequence is kind of crap. Uh, but like even beyond that, like it does get better and it does realize how to use that character more effectively. You know once she gets her suit and like once they realize how to actually make the movements work. It poses some questions, um, interesting questions like what happens to a mystic arts sensitive person when they go AWOL from We can say it, Wong pops up in the show. Yeah, Wong pops up in the show to call out one of the students that kind of uh, got, either they left or they were like kind of banned from Kamartaj. Um, and then becomes like this, this uh, sideshow ma- magician. And so it asks the question of like, what happens in those types of, in those types of situations or uh, with the name like She-Hulk, what happens if somebody sues the She-Hulk and her firm because the name that she's using was actually like copywritten or it was trademarked. 
this isn't the intense, like serious, emotional, heavy show that something like maybe WandaVision had, um, that, uh, you know, Falcon and Winter Soldier was a very intense show. This show you, you can watch and not really expect <laughs> that sounds so bad, but I was gonna say you, this is a show that you can watch and not be like, you know, being on the edge of your seat at the end of every episode for that next cliffhanger. It's just not, it doesn't have that type of tone. Um, what it does have is like instances of Jen as a character when she and her alter ego, she Hulk are looked at differently in the public eye, even in like from romantic um, angles, it starts to affect Jen and it starts to like really ask the question of like, how do you live with this person inside you who comes out and is regarded differently than who you are? And how do you like kind of start to understand yourself, love yourself being both sides? Uh, there's actually, I think, a lovely episode and it's titled uh, The Retreat. And The Retreat is where Jen visits uh, the Abomination character once he's like, now he's like being monitored and he's already been released. You know, that's not really a spoiler. There's not really big things to spoil here, except for obviously that character who shows up in the semifinale. But I wanted to mention the retreat episode because they helped Jen get over a, a guy who has seemingly ghosted her. And it was, it was this kind of like cute sequence that we had seen of her really being smitten with someone only for it to not end up how she had liked. And the support that they show for her was just very, even if comedically moving, I actually really admired that. And I liked the wackiness of its characters and how they were able to step into Jen's life. And to Tatiana Maslany's credit, she really like, just like Enola Holmes with Millie Bobby Brown, Maslany lives in this character. And I'm convinced that like, when we see Jennifer Walters on screen again, when we see the She-Hulk, I'm, I'm trusting that it's going to be done, uh, with care and with just excellent performance because of the actor behind it. You do bring up the point of like, you know, Jen's personal and private life's kind of become one and the same by the end. We got a little bit of a tease of that in like No Way Home and like a couple other, you know, more properties we got recently. Heroes and superhero identities were like, that didn't become an issue until recently in the MCU. And I do feel like She-Hulk is tackling it fairly effectively, especially for Jennifer as a woman and like what that means in the public eye of like what assumptions people will make. Are you kidding me? She gets straight up like docs and she gets like com completely um, like shunned, shamed. There's so much like aggressive masculine um, personalities in this series too, that she just shuts down. And every time she does it, um, I, I was like rooting for her. And I was happy that like we, we, we got to see that from a character like this, who was using more than just her fists to kind of settle these arguments or settle these situations. Were you completely on board with the, not even breaking of the fourth wall, breaking of the catalog of streaming shows on Disney Plus and climbing through and meeting Kevin K-E-V-I-N. How did you feel about the approaches it took to write its own story for the finale? And did you expect it leading up? First of all, I was spoiled by all of it. Thanks, Twitter. Um, but beyond that, I, I heard a lot of different things about it where it's like, People were praising it for how meta it was, but at the same time, you know, as I mentioned before, that meta commentary only goes so far. I am a bit of both minds on it. Brandon, I'm feeling weird. I kind of hated it, but like, I feel like I'm with you. Like, it was a little bit of both because I'm watching this going like, okay, I hate this, but I'm... I'm watching still, you know, and not just because we have to cover it on the pod, because I will turn something off and say, Brandon, I'm not, we're not talking about this. Um, but here's the thing about that ending is that it's super ambitious, right? Like it's unlike anything the MCU has done. And I really appreciate the notion of 
trying to turn the knife back on yourself and kind of, you know, look at what you've done and say, yeah, we can make fun of ourselves. We can poke fun of it. And I do love the writer's room sequence where, you know, Jen walks in the writer's room and it's just, you know, all the writers are kind of just intimidated, but they're also not like they get that this is very much a character who doesn't really have any bearing. Like, But it also kind of leads to the idea of how much does Marvel properly care about their characters versus their creators and how much are they willing to do for that? Minus the idea of like, you know, Kevin Feige as a content robot, which is bringing up a lot of different implications. And I don't love it. But at the same time, it's important to point out, and there's a lot of different mindsets going into it. I appreciate the ambition behind it. I appreciate the show has the balls to kind of go in that direction. I just wish it went for the knife a bit more. The finale and what it serves as, which is, you know, forget all these like random expected kind of outcomes that, that you would get in a superhero series where the super serum is stolen by, you know, an opposing party and they create their own super soldier. And all of a sudden Bruce Banner's back abominations here. Why an earlier villain shows up. Why? And Jennifer has those reactions of, are we really doing this? And it's funny because that's how you feel watching it. You go, is this, is this really going to be the ending? But it's ironic because (laughs) then as we move towards the finale and we break through the studio Jen pitches her own ending or she's told that there is a, a, an alternate one. I, I can't remember exactly, but um, move towards a point of resolution. Yet I was still thinking, are we, are we doing this? Because it has that moment of, no, we're going to create our own finale and this is what it's going to be. But it doesn't come across as that. Like this doesn't feel like the end to what Jennifer's character has spent much of the series doing. And maybe you disagree. I mean, I, that's, it's just my personal like perspective. See, I, again, really like it from Jen's character's point of view, where, like, even after the ending is, like, changed and she's walking out of it, there's that whole really great framing of her kind of, like, almost sports center style of just, like, yeah, this is me. I'm taking over my story. Screw you if you disagree. But it also doesn't really work with the show that wants it to have it every way that it can and can't really contain it. So, like, it's a really weird mixture I haven't seen in a long time of, like, a character's journey being really fulfilling and interesting versus a show that can't really contain it. Spoilers, but again, the show has been out. I'm sure if you were interested, you have knocked this out on your watch list. But for one, I wanted to have a stopping point on Daredevil because he does show up and bang, do they, they do. And then two, the Hulk's son, Brandon, what is going on? Do you want to stop on the Daredevil point? I know you're a Daredevil fan. We got to talk about it. Oh, I'll talk about Daredevil. Here's the thing. I I love the Daredevil Netflix series. I know that Matt and Karen are endgame. I'm sorry, Matt and Jen are endgame. They are one of my favorite like new MCU couples. They're so adorable. And also, Daredevil does the walk of shame. And I love that. That's so comic accurate. You have no idea. Um, and just even having him at the barbecue at the very end with like the parents, like there's such charming, like cool stuff there. But it's also like great subtext in there. Like Daredevil has had to contend with a lot in trying to contend with his own identity as a superhero and, you know, also as a disabled man and, you know, all those character identities. And he's bringing that to Jen. And I really appreciated him being a mentor figure in that. Beyond the fact, they're just cute. I'm not a part of the, you know, the, the fan uh, mass that is like, that has been devoted to Daredevil since the beginning. I, I unfortunately, like my one uh, remembrance of the character in uh, live action is Ben Affleck's Daredevil. And oh, I'm so sorry. Exactly, right? But I watched it when I was young and it just stuck. And I just, I knew that the Daredevil series was another one that like was probably going to take more than me just throwing it on in the background or just throwing it on without intention. 
yes, they're nerdy. Yes, they're both work in the legal system. So their type of banter is so professional yet so flirty and like fun. I like that his reaction to being like lifted up by the She-Hulk is not is not one of like, oh my God, like put me down. But instead of like, hi, Jen, like a little embarrassed, right? Because he- He's it's totally like the, in touch with the masculinity. Yeah, and they're uh, they're able to poke fun at each other in the ways that, yeah, you want to see uh, in a rom-com. So uh, Maslani and- Cox, uh, put them both in a series. They'll be wonderful together or put them both in a, in a rom-com. They'll be wonderful together. Maybe you want to stop on the point longer, Brandon, but I did want to move on to the Hulk son before you wrap. Let's talk about Scar. Um, okay. Yeah. What's going on. Okay. Because last time we seen Hulk before, like the fake out of him showing up in the finale, he was telling Jen that he has something to take care of and he'll be back soon. And then he jets off in a ship into space doing who knows what, but returns in the finale at this like family barbecue where Jen is having a Matt meet her family. And then cousin Bruce shows up and Bruce says, and, you know, you think that the series is going to be over and you go, yeah, I like this. I-, I think I'm ready for a season two and I know what's going to be brought in. No, there's still one more surprise packed in and it is Bruce's Hulk son who was conceived, I'm assuming, on that planet in Ragnarok. I don't know what's going on. I mean, it's definitely teasing like the World War Hulk connections. Like if you know the comics, like Scar is a crucial character and, you know, the Hulk family, obviously the Bruce's uh, you know, lineage. You bring your, you bring about, you bring up the Ragnarok idea, and I have to believe that like that whole you know spoiler the spaceship we see at the end of episode one. I have to believe that is a consequence of his actions in Ragnarok. He goes into space afterwards, and then somehow he and someone do the thing, and Scar pops out. Um, I'm not sure how he's a grown man, but you know that's going to be a thing. And this is where my mind goes, Brandon. Okay, um, that was obviously happening on another planet. We don't know how long it takes for them to orbit the sun. We don't know how long it takes for their time to pass. Maybe he conceived the child and then he left and then the child became a grown man. By the time he comes back, Hulk's going to be a younger man than his older child. I don't know what a a time warp is. I don't know what a loop is. That's exactly what happened. Um, But you just brought up a title called War? Oh, wait, Hulk War? What was it called? World of Hulk? Have you never heard of World War Hulk? It's slowly unlocking something in my brain, but no, I just, I'm not familiar. But are you assuming this is a tease toward it? It looks like it, because like, Hulk be. goes into space, and he gets his son, and he does what we assume to be gladiator shenanigans, and it, it, it looks like it's leading towards that. Like, we got the, you know, we got Abomination back, we're bringing She-Hulk. Apparently, uh, Mark Ruffalo's supposed to be in the, in the new Captain America movie, so like, that's teasing that as well, so like, the potential of that World War Hulk storyline, at least in some capacity in the MCU, is pretty close. Again, I didn't need those teases in a freaking, like, goofy-as-heck She-Hulk show. I-, I guess it's cool. Maybe you're on board. Maybe you're not. Speaking to the listeners now directly. But uh, I think we're in a good spot to move on to our ratings for this show, this nine-episode run of the She-Hulk series. Let's go ahead and share it. This is going to sound harsh. <laughs> Six and a half, because, like, again... I did really wound up liking it. Tatiana Maslany saves this show, as does a lot of the supporting cast too. Like Ginger Gonzaga, we didn't mention it. Uh, Renee Goldsberry, uh, Tim Roth, like a lot of supporting cast in this are really fun. Uh, the humor does eventually work, and it, it, you know, it, I've heard some people say it really clicked for them initially. Like, congrats! I'm glad that worked for you. For me, it took me a while to really get into like the tone and ideas that they were really trying to get across with the show. The last three episodes are great. Like, I think for, like, just common MCU nerds who are, like, looking for something really fun between the character, 
those are the episodes that really shine and have the most, uh, at least the most interesting ideas to me. You know, the structure is trying to have both a sitcom, you know, episode of the week, courtroom drama type structure, as well as an overarching serial, you know, superhero MCU style. They don't necessarily work together, but it gives us a really fun, really complex, really interesting character with a great actress who is embodying it. As long as like you pay your VFX workers a bit more and give them more room to breathe, I think this can really work for a season two. You know, after hearing yours, I was like, you know what? Yeah, you know, I, I was thinking somewhere in that space too. Not so, I guess, easy to pick up and entertaining that I was like, it's a seven, but six and a half sounds like that sweet kind of spot because it's not the show I expected. Maybe it's not the show you expect either, but once you're on board with it and you're, and you just see what it's doing, it's not hard to keep up with. It's not hard to just like forgive some of its, it's not really a nuance, but it forgives some of its, I'll just say outright shortcomings, right? When it comes to the CGI, when it comes to its use of its hero in, in more than just the comedic sense or more than just the, the personal sense. But maybe that's just what this season one is looking to achieve. Uh, season two will get them involved in other situations or other scenarios. But Jennifer Walters said it herself. Um, she's taking hold of this show and what she wants it to, uh, accomplish and, I want them to retain like that kind of uh, format for what the show can be, because so far the Disney plus series, like maybe uh, I like that. Just some of them have more than enough of them have their unique um, flows, their unique methods of storytelling. And for this to be another example of that makes it an exciting addition to the catalog. Um, it brings in a powerful actor into the MCU who I can only hope has a stronger presence moving forward. Uh, but with that being said, Hulk smash. <laughs> no. Oh my gosh. I work at a farm and I'm that corny, but uh, <laughs> this is, uh, this is a wreck for me. It may not be the first thing I say you need to knock off your watch list, but keep it on there. And when you're looking for just a fun, good time, um, loosely related to the MCU and just kind of filling in some weird gaps and questions, definitely throw this on. Also that Megan, the stallion cameo faces uh that'll do it for episode 39 of plot devices thank you all so much for tuning in listen while we got you here uh apple podcast spotify rss feed you can find the show there at plot devices that's the show name uh leave us a rating leave us a you know star rating whatever you can just let us know how the show's been doing so you know it'll pass us on the algorithm pass on to more audiences who aren't necessarily you know in our immediate friend circles who we hope to expand to and also just letting us know how it is that you know the show is going and what you guys want to see from us and you can tell us directly if you want on twitter and instagram at plot devices pod that's twitter and instagram at plot devices pod and on our tiktok page at plot devices podcast i want to thank my normal co-host as usual noah where can people find you online what are you enjoying nowadays and uh, again how you doing Please go ahead and give me a follow on Noah's Plotting if you want to see the uh, every so often tweet about either A, me being a bard, me being a gamer, me being a film fan, me being involved in the horror space. Um, I am busying myself tonight with the first hour of gameplay for God of War Ragnarok. So I am giddy with excitement when it comes to this game. Uh, I hope that there's some gamers who, who are listening and are also sharing in that excitement with me. Um, I'm going to knock this game out so quick, Brandon, but I mean, plot device plays, that's going to be down the road, but God of War Ragnarok, I can't wait to experience the full breadth of what that story can accomplish. And from what I've seen, it's just getting so many amazing ratings uh, with myself being unavailable to when myself being away from my consoles, like from the last week, I'm sure everyone else has like finished this game. So I'm literally avoiding spoilers across my feeds, but I can't wait just to get back with my controller and playing as Kratos and, you know, realizing where his journey continues. The God of War franchise has just been an excellent example of like storytelling that goes beyond just like, the fact that it's a video game. Um, 
it's it's just beautiful. You guys can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at the Movie King Forty Five. That's Twitter and Instagram at the Movie King Forty Five. You can follow my band if you're curious as well at Cablebox underscore Music. That's Cablebox underscore Music on Twitter and Instagram. Our debut single, Wish, is out on all audio platforms right now. New music is coming soon, and new gigs are coming soon. You should go follow us on there to check those out. And uh, once again, all the, all those links will be in the description below if you are at all curious. So for that being said, thank you all again so much for being patient with us for episode 39. Thank you for you know checking it out as, uh, as per usual. My name is Brandon King. That has been Noah Guzman. This is an episode 39 of Plot Devices. I'll catch you guys next time. 